Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen, and I'm joined today by RCD contributor Todd Carney. Todd, good to have you with us. Thank you. Today, we are speaking with Jason Kander, veteran, politician, and most recently author of Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD. In 2006, Kander served as a military intelligence officer in Afghanistan for the Army Reserve. After returning to civilian life, Kander entered politics, serving in his home state of Missouri's House of Representatives, and in 2012 as the Missouri Secretary of State. In 2016, he ran for Missouri's Senate seat, narrowly losing to Republican Roy Blunt by only a few points in a state where President Trump beat Hillary Clinton by more than 18 points. He became a rising star in the Democratic Party with speculation about a presidential run. In 2018, he ran for mayor of Kansas City, but in a dramatic turn, dropped out of the race, citing symptoms of PTSD and depression. Currently, he co-hosts with Ravi Gupta, the progressive political podcast Majority 54, and is the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project, a nonprofit supporting homeless veterans. Jason Kander, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I read the book. I think it's great. It's it's candid. It's it's funny. I think it's it's not a slog. I, I don't want people to think that this is you know like a a super downer. Um, obviously, the things that you went through were you know were really dark and challenging and difficult. I, I wanted to talk about the book. Seems to me in your experience about really the conflicts between different views of of both of yourself, your expectations of yourself, your your experiences in Afghanistan compared to other people, other people's perception of you and really what was going on uh inside of you, you know, as you say, is that, you know, 10 years before you ultimately sought help uh at, at the VA, uh your your wife Diana has these interludes in the book. She's chiming in constantly her perception of what was going on. And so start with describing what was that the the main contrast between what you were experiencing internally uh, those those symptoms of PTSD versus what i think was most people's perception of you you know most a lot of people probably know you from the the viral campaign ad of you know uh putting together your weapon blindfolded you know you're incredibly successful uh, against blunt ultimately losing but uh you know really as a as a a hyper competent rising political star but uh that was not necessarily what you were experiencing internally yeah and you know the first of all thanks for saying nice things uh, particularly thank you for calling the book funny i mean my my two greatest worries are that what would stop people from reading the book and thankfully you know, hasn't stopped a lot of people. It's a bestseller. That's great. But w- yeah, what, it's doing okay. <laughs> yeah. But, but what would, what would make me hesitant about reading a book like this is if I think it's a, just really depressing, uh, which you point out it's not and, or B in any way, like a memoir written by a politician, that's a political memoir. Cause those, I just don't read those. They're so boring. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't think of a comparable political memoir coming onto the scene yeah. talking about mental health challenges. Uh, so so you yeah. got a first there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like if if this is the memoir you write as a politician to get more votes, like you did it wrong. Um, but <laughs> but uh but anyway, um the to your point, yeah, I mean there 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 was this dichotomy and 
I've thought about it a fair amount, particularly during the book tour, because I've gotten the opportunity to talk about those two different competing versions of myself, uh, the interior me and the exterior me. And what I've realized um, a bit over the last few months is that, and I and I do write about this in the book, but I've really, really given it a lot more thought uh, recently, which is that, you know, I had this in, internal perception of myself that was about me as a human being. And it was just that, and this is not uncommon, it turns out, I've learned, uh, to people who've experienced trauma, it was that I wasn't worthy of any of the good things happening to me and that I basically was a pretty irredeemable human. And the easiest way to describe this is that, um, like the shortest version of that is I had very low self-esteem. Like my, my self-esteem was, you know, the version of me was I didn't like myself at all because I had all these symptoms, but I didn't feel I'd earned them, that kind of thing. Then uh, competing with that, and this is hard to explain, was this level of self-confidence that was just unrivaled. Like I I could in one moment, I could at the same time, I could hold these two thoughts in my head, which is I'm not a good human, but I could also believe I am the most talented politician in the country. Um, and I 100% believed those, both of those things fully. And so what ended up happening was is that even though I would think these very bad things about myself and feel all this shame, I knew that I could go up in front of any crowd and I could win them over. I knew that if you put me on a major, you know, national uh, television interview, you know, if you put me on that set, like I was going to crush it. I, I was better at fundraising than everybody else. And, and look, honestly, like I still believe those things about myself. I, I still like right or wrong. Like I still think I have a gift and, you know, we all have different gifts. That's the one that, that I was given. But what I ended up doing is in, I didn't know how, or even that I should try to heal all that internal pain. So I tried to put a bandaid over it, a salve over it. And what that was, was I tried to use my self-confidence to alleviate the pain of my lack of self-esteem. So I became addicted to, you know, social media adulation. I became addicted to the endorphin highs of giving a big speech and having everybody be very excited and think you should run for president because that gave me this semblance right. of hope that right. I wasn't irredeemable. Right. And I, I think, you know, and I, I think this is a, a recurring theme for stories about people trying to deal with PTSD is that, uh, you know, often veterans talk about, you know, the safest and most comfortable place they feel is, you know, in that fourth, fifth tour, you know, returning mm -hmm. to Afghanistan, it feels like home. It feels, you know, they know what the rules are. They, they know what, uh, what their job is. They, they have that structure that, that surrounds them and, and they have a force that surrounds them that, you know, they're part of, part of a larger organization and that, you know, the, the worst thing uh, for someone dealing with the kinds of challenges that you're talking about is, 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 is not to have a job. Yeah. Um, not, Slowing not to down. have a, not, not to have a mission really. And right. so it, it's, it's, uh, I was reading it in, in that aspect as well, that, that, you know, having a high pressure, high stakes job, you know, keeps you from dealing with, with the other stuff. Dealing with myself, right? Like it, it's, it basically, what I didn't realize at the time was I was desperate to not be alone with myself and my own intrusive thoughts mm, and disruptive right. memories. Right. And, and it wasn't until, you know, I, I went to therapy and I confronted all that stuff that I realized there was a way to do that. And that's where I ended up in a place of post-traumatic growth. But if you haven't attempted that, or if, if, you know, you, if you're where I was, you're just, you know, running as hard as you can and going 
I remember saying at one point to my campaign manager, I just have to keep going. And I didn't even really know what that meant. I just knew that I can't stop, that if I stopped, I right. you know, I would die is how I felt. And, uh, and as I said, when I announced my, you know, departure from public life for a while to go get treated, I, the one thing I had figured out is I, is I had said, I've realized that uh, PTSD is faster than me. I can't outrun it and I have to turn around and confront it. And that's ultimately what I had to do. The other cognitive dissonance that you talk about is the perception of what does a stressful tour or a stressful military experience look like versus what you were describing to yourself you, you were you were in Afghanistan for 4 months it was a relatively short tour but talk about what you were actually doing um versus what your internal narrative was of what you know oh i i'm not the kind of guy who gets ptsd cuz you know i i didn't fire my weapon i didn't you know i didn't i wasn't in major firefights but what you did have was this persistent toxic constant background radiation of of stress this this kind of persistent threat level often without the kind of support that uh you might have had if, had you been in a larger unit yeah that's exactly right i mean i went over there uh thinking that you know i understood what combat was combat was you know what you'd see in the movies it was black hawk down it was saving private ryan like that's combat and anything else is not combat um and that's what i believed and that's what i believed for a long time and then i i got there and the job that i did i was uh I was an intelligence officer who, um, though I was in the reserves, I, I was put in an active duty slot um, to, to fill a position uh, sort of really at the high level in Afghanistan, reporting directly to the um, director of intelligence, the, the colonel who was the director of intelligence for U.S. forces, but doing really kind of tactical work in, the, in a sense, um, just for lack of a better way of explaining it. Um, I'll just I'll tell you what it was, which is that they needed somebody to uh, get more information, get collect more intelligence on um, corruption and espionage and narco trafficking among the people who like the ambassador and the general and, and other subordinate leaders were working with all the time. But in order to do that, somebody had to go out and like meet with people who were adjacent to the corrupt people. Right. So so my translator and I on a very regular basis, just went out sometimes in street clothes, went out and took meetings with people who were pretty unsavory characters of very questionable allegiance, uh, who generally had us totally outgunned. I mean, it was often me and Salam, my translator in a, in a room where it could easily be a trap. Um, and you know, you go in there to build relationships, to get information, but you're aware that you're in a lot of danger. Now I did this for these four months. And like you said, I didn't, I didn't fire my weapon. Um, and so I came home, like, I just fully believed I was like, I'm not a combat veteran. I'm a jerk who went to meetings. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, almost 11 years later when I finally went to the VA and my first sit down with a clinical social worker who asked me, she said, you know, what are your friends who are in firefights? What do they say about what you did over there? And I said, well, they always say they don't think they could have done the job that I did, but I, they're just being generous, I'm sure. And she said, no, no, no. She's like, look, what they went through was traumatic. There's no question. She's like, but you know, they were, a, they were surrounded by their friends and, and, and it was short. It lasted a few minutes and, and then it would be over. And, and then they came home and they didn't get into firefights. Like, she's like, you went to the most dangerous place on the planet. You went out 
on a nearly daily basis, practically alone with no backup, nobody knowing where you were, reasonable chance that you could be killed and nobody was coming to save you, right? If, if it went bad um, and you were vulnerable for hours at a time and then you came back and what did you do for a living? You took high stakes meetings. Um, and she was like, you're a combat veteran and that's very traumatic what you did. Your friends are not being kind. They're looking at what you did and saying, I don't know if I could have done that. And, and it was, that was the first time having it said back to me that way that I could understand like, oh, when you say it as if it's somebody else you're describing, I can hear it and go, that does sound traumatic. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I do really like that. I mean, the book is, you know, it's, it's not to sound cliche about it, but it, you know, it's your journey of growth from like, you know, being kind of a dumb kid to ultimately having somebody help you come up with the the vocabulary and the, and the framework to, to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the book, you know, it kind of starts on that day where you left the, the mayoral race, but I think for people who might be experiencing something similar or know people that are, or, you know, have loved ones, uh, that are, are experiencing something similar. There had to have been a point where you, because you, you, you ultimately sought out help where you, you recognized this is not healthy behavior. I need to go get somebody else involved in this. What, what was it that led to that initial decision point? So it was uh, a couple of things. It was it was like sort of a cascade. It was like three different factors. Like one, over the course of that ten year period, I just got worse and worse and worse, right? And it and I would tell myself stories about how well I must be getting better because of you know now looking back, I'm like that was not a reason to tell yourself you're getting better. You just wanted to tell yourself that. Um, and so I was aware, you know, a few years in, I was aware like. This and is, you're high functioning. You're successful. You're doing yeah. things that are succeeding. Yeah. But I was like, I'm aware that I, other people are not like doing, they're not like searching their house at night for intruders. And, you know, I, I was aware that that wasn't happening, but I would always tell myself like a story about, well, there's a reason I have to, it's not connected to my service. And so I had this awareness of it. And then it just, during the, what was basically the presidential campaign, it was getting, worse because I wasn't sleeping at all. I hadn't slept in years because of night terrors. And so then the first moment where I had a realization about it was, as I said, I had been stringing these endorphin highs together to kind of, that was my drug. And I kind of, I got to the point where I was at the zenith of my professional career. Like I was, the things that I wanted were happening, which is to say, I was the keynote speaker at this major annual event in New Hampshire, where the Democratic Party basically sizes up whether somebody is, you know, presidential material. Um, Like the two years before me, the keynote speaker was, I think, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. And the year after me, it was Elizabeth Warren, right? So it was that kind of event. And so, and it's like on national television, my parents are at home in Kansas city watching it. And, uh, and I crushed the speech. Like it was like, I worked really hard on it and I, you know, I know when a speech goes well and when it doesn't. And it was, it was a moment where I had arrived. And, uh, that night I felt great. Next morning I felt great. I go to the TSA. I go through TSA at, um, Manchester, New Hampshire. And the TSA guy is like, Oh, it's the next president of the United States. You know, I mean, like it, things are feeling great by the, and usually that sort of high would last a few days. By the time my, my ass hit the seat in the plane, like I felt numb. And I remember being like, okay, this is like the biggest high and it didn't last 12 hours. Something is really wrong. And so 
then um, I went to give a speech in Hawaii, actually, and, and I got to take my family with me, and uh, and my campaign manager went as well, and I confessed to him that I I didn't know if I had it in me to actually run, uh, and he threw out the idea of, well, you could just you know stop flying around the country all the time, stay home, and run for mayor of Kansas City, and I instantly was like, oh, that must be what I need to do, so I thought like, Oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll get to see progress in my hometown. That's going to give me the sense of redemption I need. So I was like, I'm going to do that. So I jump into that mayoral race and a lot of people were surprised I decided on that instead of president. And, you know, when you go from running for president to running for mayor, like you're supposed to be the front runner. And we were like, we were going to win by a lot. And that campaign should have been really fun. Like, you know, we sold $25,000 worth of t-shirts the day we announced, like it should have been the most fun campaign ever. Um, and instead I was just getting worse and worse and worse. And increasingly, as we were pulling away more and more, I was thinking more and more about ending my life. And that, I just, it was scary. I didn't want to want to die. And that fear uh, and recognizing this was really serious, what that culminated in is I just, one night I called the Veterans Crisis Line. Um, and it was when I talked to the woman on the other end of the line and I could tell from the tone of her voice that I didn't sound different than anybody else she had talked to in that job was when I finally had to admit to myself that I wasn't different than anybody else who she had talked to in that job and that I did have PTSD and that I better deal with it. Or, And I didn't even know if I, you know, I didn't know anything about PTSD. I was like, maybe, maybe I can't get better. But I was like, I have to try because I, I got a family. Obviously, I mean, it's or it, not obviously. It, it sounds like through through the book, you're in a better place. You you are dealing with a, a lot of things that were uh, really really a challenge. Do you think of it as a forever condition that you have to manage? Do you do you think of yourself as cured? Do you think of this as behind you? Do you think of this as as uh, you're still in an ongoing process? Uh, how, how do you think about your own your own mental health? Uh, so I have PTSD. I'm always going to have PTSD. Um, but you know, I, what I compare it to is right before I went into the army, you know, and you read this, you, you know, in the book, I wrote about this in the book, I, I had to have knee surgery because I got this knee injury and I had to go through physical therapy. The army wouldn't take me. And, you know, I still have knee problems in my right knee, but, um, I'm really active physically. And like, I, I play, I play baseball, like not softball. I play on like a, very serious men's baseball team for like guys over 30. And it's like, I'm hanging in with a lot of guys who played college and pro and I'm like pretty fast. Like I'm the guy who steals bases on our team. And the thing is at night when I go home, uh, I ice my knee, you know, I play, I played like 40 games or something this summer. And every night I come home and I ice my knee in bed. And if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be able to play the next day. PTSD is, it's an injury. It's just instead of a physical injury, it's, it's a, a mental and emotional injury. So, you know, there are things that I do, uh, to make sure that I, I can, uh, manage my PTSD. Like I try to meditate from time to time. I don't do it as much as I should. Honestly, exercise is a huge part of it for me. Um, but then there's also just the stuff I learned in therapy that's super helpful. Just like 
when, um, for instance, uh, you know what, right now is a good example. I'm looking out my window and my son has had really bad allergies today. So we kept him home and uh, he's outside and he's on his scooter out in front and he's got his helmet on, but he's going up and down the street, but I haven't seen my wife out there. So my son is nine years old and there is a part of me, the hypervigilant part, and this comes from PTSD, that wants to stop this interview, go outside and make sure that my wife is out there. Now we live on a very safe street. Like, and, you know, look, everybody can relate to this, but I'm talking about this part of me is stronger than it is in other people. Like, in my mind, I've imagined all the terrible things that could happen, right? Um, but the difference is managing my PTSD is like, it used to be that would consume me. Now I understand that I look out there and I, under I understand he's fine. And the thing in my brain that's telling me that he's not fine, that's not real. That's just PTSD. And I can dismiss that now in a way that I couldn't before. And I can do it pretty easily. But I have to maintain it. I have to, you know, be aware of what's going on with me in order to make sure that, uh, you know, I don't have something flare up. Uh, just like if I didn't ice my knee, probably not stealing second base the next day. One thing about the pandemic well, hopefully is is the normalization of conversations about mental health. I think everybody has had a particularly challenging last couple of years. And I like that a lot about the book that it's just the tone that you take is it's not a very precious thing. It's just it's a thing you got to deal with. Mm -hmm. So you're you're in a, a small club. You're a politician. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no news there. Uh, you are a veteran among politicians, a smaller club. And now you're a veteran uh, who's gone through the, the VA and especially for, for mental health. Uh, how does that change your perspective? And I, I know Todd wants to jump in here too, thinking about how veterans affairs specifically, but veterans issues in general play out in, in the hyper tribalized political landscape that we have. Yeah. Oh, it's a great question. It has definitely changed my perspective. Um, in a that experience, that personal experience, here's how that's changed my perspective, but then I'll get into something else that's changed it. So the way that's changed my perspective is before I started going to the VA, all I understood was what any of us who've never been to the VA understand, which is the stuff people say about the VA. The VA is a mess. The VA is all this stuff. That's what I understood. Now I have a much deeper understanding of the fact that the system that has been set up uh, by Congress largely and the Byzantine system that exists as a result of the VA, that is a real problem. Um, but what I didn't know and what I know now is that every, for me personally, every clinician, every administrative person, every individual who works at the VA, who I have encountered as a patient, whether on the mental health side or, you know, I get uh, I, I get my primary care at the VA now too, it's just been outstanding. It's just some of the best customer service experience I've ever had in my life. Everybody's proud to be there and they take what they do very seriously and they love it. Um, and they are as frustrated often as some of the patients are with uh, the difficulty of navigating the system. Um, so that granted me that perspective, but what has given me a great deal more perspective over it is the work I do now. Um, and you know, I wrote about this in the book that I, I now am the president of National Expansion for Veterans Community Project, which we are a nonprofit organization that builds campuses nationwide to deal with um, the veteran suicide epidemic. And uh, what we're best known for is we, we build villages of tiny houses with wraparound case management to move veterans out of homelessness. And we do this very successfully. But what all of that work has taught me is that the central problem with uh, the issues regarding veterans politically in this country is that 
every issue seems to be handled through the prism of a single question by Congress. And that question too often is, how do we make sure that a veteran who doesn't deserve it never gets access to this service, whatever it is? And the reason that that is so problematic is because it begins with the premise that there are veterans who do not deserve veterans care. And and when you when you start from that question, you are immediately narrowing the scope and it's how you end up with a with a system where m- tons of people who everybody would agree are deserving veterans are not successful in navigating that system because it's been set up with like a moat and you know full of gators and stuff around it that you know people who are supposed to be in the castle don't get in so would you characterize the the core issue as the long lines waiting to get the diagnosis and into the system but once you're kind of once you've got a diagnosis and you're in the system, the the care is is high quality. Yes. Um, now I know that that can vary based on, like any other hospital system that can sure. vary based on local sure. leadership. And I've been very fortunate, you know, here in Kansas City, I think it's very good. But it, yeah, I, I would characterize it that way. The thing is, is that here's something most people don't know: um, is that you know, look, we all we all regard the word veteran to mean somebody who served in the military. So most people walking around think that if you served in the military, you can go to the VA. That's not the case. If you served in the military for 20 years and had an honorable discharge at the end of that time and retired, yes, you can go to the VA for your care. If you are below a certain income requirement and a combat veteran, and you can show that there was some level of connected trauma, well, then you can go get care for mental health at, for PTSD, or you were injured in the service and you have proof that it is service-connected injury and it's above a certain threshold. But you see how where I'm going here? Like, there's an awful lot of people excluded in all right. that. Right. And, and the act of having to get yourself included in that naturally excludes a lot of people who should be included. Todd, what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, so kind of getting into maybe some of the politics of that, it seems that these days there's some issues, though, fewer and fewer in these parts and times where it really isn't as much about party control that there's maybe, say, 55 senators who are really support one issue. And as long as 51 of them are in, whether whatever combination of Republican, Democrat it is, for that issue, at least, it doesn't matter who controls Congress. Do you think veterans' issues um, counts as one of those issues? I did until the burn pit stuff. Um, you know, I, I I I wanted to believe that. Um, you know, now I know the burn pit thing eventually passed, but you know, it's because John Stewart has a big microphone and he shamed them. And and the decision they made, they tried to pretend that it was policy oriented and then they just did it anyway to prove that it wasn't policy oriented. You know, they were mad about, like I've served in a, in a legislative body before, like somebody wins one on you. It's kind of like in a baseball game where guy gets hit with a pitch, there's a certain expectation you're going to, you're going to plunk somebody on the other team. And you know, you, if you step out of it and you're not on that team, you think it's ridiculous. These grown men throwing baseballs 90 miles an hour at each other. But if you, it's the same way that if you're in the Senate, you can't step out of it. You think it's completely normal to, you know, shoot down a bill without thinking about what the bill is in order to punish the other side for getting one over on you. But outside it looks terrible. And had we not, you know, had John Stewart to demonstrate how terrible it looked, I'm not sure that that passes. And and so that worries me a lot. Um, but you know, the greater problem, I think it's it's not just 
it is that you know veter- that everything, including veterans' issues, gets swept up in this polarization. But I think the antidote to that is actually greater knowledge and understanding of veterans' issues among the people in Congress. Because having been in politics a while and been a veteran, I can tell you how upsetting it is over time to see us, frankly, just used so often as props. I mean, like, and, and look, both parties have been guilty of this in the sense that you know, I think veterans tend to be kind of like unions and that a lot of politicians understand that they're either supposed to be for or against it, but they don't really know what it is, like if they've never been a part of it. And I've talked to people who are in like on committees in Congress who, you know, oversee the VA, who when I talk to them about the fact that like, for instance, uh, somebody who was like in the Maryland National Guard and mobilized after January 6th and spent five months guarding the Capitol, but never deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, that that person will not be considered a veteran by the federal government and won't ever get access to the VA. They're shocked to find that out. Um, and so a lack of curiosity about this Byzantine system, I think, is is a big part of the problem. Wow. Yeah, that's great insight. And can I ask that in terms of um, getting more members who understand the system? You're uh, obviously supporting a lot of Democrats this cycle, um, far and near. But have there been maybe some standout candidates on the um, issue of veterans that you think really stand out? Yeah, look, there are a few standouts who I think are, are really uh, exemplary in this area. Um, just to name a few, you know, uh, Max Rose, uh, who's a former congressman um, in Staten Island and a Purple Heart recipient, is running again. Uh, and you know, Max is a guy who I know goes to the VA, has real insight on it. Um, you know, this is not at the federal level, but my friend Wes Moore, who is running for governor of Maryland, and is in my mind, one of the singularly most impressive human beings on the planet, combat veteran who really understands this stuff, um, is actually the very first blurb on the back of my book. Like, I mean, so he, he and I share a very similar wavelength. Another guy who I think is tremendous on this, uh, is Ruben Gallego, who's a very close friend. Ruben, uh, is a Marine and a combat veteran who, um, is represents Arizona in Congress who, you know, I think will, probably be running for the Senate next time around. Um, I don't have that confirmed. I'm not making news, but that's what I believe. Um, and Ruben is, you know, John, you were talking about the small club earlier of politicians who are, who are veterans. You can make that club a whole lot smaller if you, if you shrink it down to politicians who are veterans who have openly talked about going to get treatment for PTSD. Uh, and it's like me and Ruben and like a couple other people, I think. Um, and he's, He's just a really inspiring guy. And then the last one is somebody who, you know, really flies below the radar, but is so crucial on this stuff um, is Senator Gary Peters uh, from Michigan. Um, You know, Gary Peters is a guy who like, he's not a flashy Senator. You don't see him on, you know, the cable channels that often, but if you look closely, regardless of whether the Democrats have been in power or not in power in the Senate, the majority of really, uh, really substantial veterans legislation has been stuff that was put together by Gary Peters, who's a Navy veteran. And then the last one who I think is really a conscious, uh, a conscious on this, sorry, a conscience on this stuff in Congress. And rightfully so is Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, who's just been fantastic on all of it as well. So there are some real standouts. 
your name was uh, there was speculation around your name for being secretary of the VA uh, when Biden was putting together his, his cabinet. Ultimately, uh, he's got Dennis Richard McDonough in. Uh, what's your assessment of where he's at and what his challenges are going forward with getting the VA uh, to a better place? Yeah, look, um, I, I think Dennis has made some progress uh, at the VA. Um, you know, there are areas where I'd like to see more. Um, yeah, look, I they how do I talk about this? Like I, those initial conversations happened and all I would say about it is, is that like, whether we're talking about running for an office or we're talking about an appointment or whatever, I I have the job I want. You know, I'm, I'm the president of national expansion at veterans community project and it's the best civilian job I've ever had, but I really want whoever is in that position to be really successful. And Dennis to his uh, credit, whether I was helpful or not, I don't know, was very thoughtful of him when I thought when he was nominated to reach out to me. And we had a very long conversation. And one of the things he said was he was like, look, I, I know Washington really well. I will say this for President Biden, when you put a former White House chief of staff in charge of the VA, I do think you are sending a strong message about the l- priority you have on the VA, like to put somebody there who really can navigate Washington and navigate Congress. Um, I think that's a good thing. But, you know, Dennis said to me, I understand, like, I'm not a veteran. And on top of that, like, I'm not a post 9-11 veteran. And there are a lot of people who who want someone with that perspective there. And I can just say from personal experience, I think it has, uh, he has been very smart too. And I think it has helped him that I do think he has reached out um, to gain a lot of that perspective from people like myself and probably people much smarter and more capable than me. And, uh, and I think it has helped. So this is a question that I have never really heard an adequate explanation to, and and we could probably talk a whole uh, hour trying to answer it. But if if you had to crystallize, why is it so difficult to reform the VA? Sure. No, I can give you a very clear answer. A lot of people think it's the VA system. A lot of people think it is, you know, the people already working at the VA. And I will tell you, it's it's much simpler than that. It's Congress. The people who have tried to reform the VA under the system as it exists are starting from a point that is nearly, it's impossible to, to make the full reforms that you want to make. It's like, it's like asking, uh, I'm not saying you're asking a dumb question. You're asking a question everybody asks, right? But it's, it, that question is basically like, uh, you know, why can't this bicycle make it across country as fast as this car? Like, how do we fix this bicycle to make it? Well, the problem is, is that somebody gave us a bicycle. They should have given us a car. And and what Congress has done by designing a system where it's it's like key operating principle is to narrow the, the sight aperture so that you cannot see outside of a certain group of people uh, who should get these services, well, then it's very difficult to then take that and deliver services quickly and efficiently in the way you want to, even to the people within the site aperture, right? If it's built to keep people outside of the funnel from getting inside the funnel, well, then you've got all sorts of traps that keep people from getting in who, you know, even Congress wants in. And I'll give you a few examples of this. Like, we have some things in our policy when it comes to veterans that we just completely accept and assume to be to make sense when they don't. For instance, if you have a dishonorable discharge, uh, you're persona non grata at the VA for the most part. Some of that has changed, but for the most part, you are. Like you're never going to get to the VA, you're not going to get those services. Well, let's think about that for a minute. All right. Now, there's the obvious ones that are problematic, like you know, a guy we helped at, at VCP, Veterans Community Project once, who had three DUIs. That's why he had a dishonorable discharge. Well, he 
got each DUI in between one of his four combat deployments. It's not exactly difficult to figure out how that happened. But let's take a more severe case. Let's take somebody who did something really terrible. Let's say somebody committed murder, right? And now we've said they're never allowed to go to the VA. They're never allowed to get those services. Okay, on, on its face, that makes sense. But if you are not a member of the military and you commit murder and you go and you serve your time, there's no movement to say that when you get out at 65, you shouldn't right. be able to get right. Medicare. We don't do that. Now, the, the fact that this person made a terrible mistake, we're not absolving that terrible mistake, but why are we acting like any service that they rendered prior to that didn't happen? Right. And this is, we're just talking right. about discharge status, which is a small percentage of this problem. Like if you served in the, in the guard or the reserve and you didn't mobilize for the enough time or, you know, by the standards they've set, or you didn't go to the place, your duration of service isn't long enough, the nature of your service, we find all these different ways to, uh, exclude people. And then when we do include people, we find all these different ways to exclude them from certain services. So it becomes shoots and ladders so that when you, when you do get in the door, you get up a certain amount and then you pull the wrong card and down to the bottom. And it's really discouraging. And it keeps a lot of people from being able to take advantage of the system. So the answer to the question of how we reform it, it's we widely open the side aperture and we make it so that anybody who served in this country can get services, who served this country can get services to the VA without all these exceptions. We, should, we have to accept the fact that that's going to cost a lot of money, but we should accept that fact. Right. That, 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 that's, that's exactly what I was going to bring it back to is, I mean, all of, all of these restrictions that it's all about rationing. Yeah. It's essentially limiting access to care because if we admit that burn pits are toxic, you know, the costs are going to spiral. If we admit that TBIs are real exactly. injuries, the costs are going to spiral. You know, <laughs> the fact that, you know, people come out of, uh, you know, combat with concussions is, should, should be uh, obvious, you know, and that that's a real problem. We now know that that's a real problem. Or, or PTSD, it's better now, but it used to not be uh, something that was that was easy to get access to care through the VA. And uh, some of that is our perception of who and who is not a veteran. I, I think that's really informative that you that you frame it that way. And, and part of it really is just about ultimately not dealing with the real costs of, of, of war. Absolutely. When we go to war, we are like, hey, war costs money. We're not going to spare any expense. Well, you know, usually we get around to that. At first, we try and spare every expense and it doesn't go well, right? But then once we get it, once we are like, oh, we better not spare any expense, we don't. But we don't do that with veteran services. And, you know, John Stewart said something during the burn pits crisis that took my breath away and has stuck with me so much. He said, as soon as they start calling you a hero, beware, because that means they're okay with letting you die. And, oh, man, that took my breath away because it's so correct. It's this, you know, it's not that the country is like, ah, they already served. We don't need them anymore. Let's leave them behind. That's not what's going on. What's going on is that the national consciousness is they're heroes. And, you know, heroes are like, it's so close to martyr, right? You know, and, and, uh, and we sort of accept this idea that whether we give voice to it or not, that people who sign up for war sign up for all of it. And, uh, and it's just, you know, this stuff costs money. And, uh, if you want to have a war, you're going to have to spend the money, not just to try to win the war, but also to take care of the people afterwards. And it's like, not like we're asking for some crazy charity. It's just like, Hey, you should be able to get your healthcare without it being like a, a, 
freaking obstacle course test of uh, of endurance. Well, I think that's uh, probably a good place to leave it there for now. The book is Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. You've got the podcast, Majority 54. And uh, tell us just real briefly again uh, about the nonprofit, what it is, and, and if people are interested where they can go to find out about it. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. In fact, I would also add that all of my royalties from Invisible Storm go to support Veterans Community Project. Um, and what Veterans Community Project does is we raise villages for anyone who's raised a hand. So we are a national nonprofit that builds these campuses to deal with the suicide epidemic and to house homeless veterans. We have an 85% success rate, which is unheard of, of transitioning people, uh, veterans from um, homelessness into um, being permanently housed and uh, in the community. Uh, and people can go to VCP, like Veterans Community Project.org, uh, to learn more. Jason Kander, thanks so much for joining Hotwash today. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Swenson.